Okay, the reading for the day out of John 6, verses 35 through 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Let's pray again. Our Father, before I pray for the message, I want to thank you for sending our team to Haiti, and I want to thank you for making them fruitful along the way, and I want to thank you for bringing them home safely to us late last night, early this morning. I want to thank you, Father, for not only what you did while they were gone, but for what you'll do in the days after. Lord, I want to thank you for the fruit that you will bear in Haiti. I want to thank you for the fruit that you will bear in each of their lives. I want to thank you for the fruit that you will bear among us as a church as we learn to lay our hands on people and send them to various portions of the world. And speaking of that, Father, we lift up our brother Ethan Larson before you who has now landed in Romania and probably has already preached at a church there this morning, earlier this morning for them. I want to thank you for the, the 20 men or so who will gather there to be trained in biblical theology. And I want to pray that you would bless Ethan and the other teachers as they teach people to see the Bible as a whole. Father, I pray that you would give them passion and power to communicate the things that you sent them to communicate. I pray that they would bear much fruit there in that country, Lord. I pray that the men of God who are gathering there to be trained would rise up and truly be men of God, that they would go into the world to spread the message of the gospel throughout their cities and indeed throughout their nation. Father, I pray for a revival to come about in Romania. I pray that you would do great things beyond what we can see now and beyond what we can imagine. We pray for Alicia and the kids as they stay behind and just pray your great blessings upon them, Father, and I pray again, as I often do, that we would be a good church to them as they wait for their husband and their father to return. Father, thank you for not only saving us, but for sending us. Thank you, Father, for not only bringing us into your family, but for making us ambassadors into the world to tell people of the love of Christ, no matter what the cost or consequence. It is a privilege beyond what we can imagine. And so, Father, we give you our thanks. And we pray that you would multiply such opportunities, Lord. We pray that you would rise up many from this church in this season of our lives and in future seasons to go to various portions of the world and to serve others for the glory of your name. And, Father, we thank you for what you will do. And now, Father, as we look to the text for today, we give you our thanks for your desire to increase our faith. Lord, wherever our level of faith is at, 
that's where it's at. But we praise you that you're here to work among us today to bring us to another place, to bring us to the next level. You're here to stretch us and to grow us and to cause us to learn what it means to look to you and believe. So Father, please come by your spirit and by the power of your word. I pray that you would stir in your church and I pray that you would teach us what it means to live by faith. Oh Father, I pray that for some people today would be a great life-shaping day and I thank you for what you'll do. In your mighty and matchless name we pray, amen. The heart of the Christian life is living by faith in Jesus Christ. And while living by faith assumes that we're growing in the knowledge of Jesus, living by faith is not fundamentally an intellectual thing, Living by faith is fundamentally a relational thing. Living by faith is fundamentally about the heart of a child seeking his or her father and wanting to do life with him. Living by faith is about listening to the words of our father day by day. It's about learning to pray according to his wisdom day by day. And it's about seeking to do his will day by day by the power of his Holy Spirit. Living by faith is stretching toward the day when we can say along with Jesus that we only do what we see our Father doing and we only say what we hear our Father saying. Living by faith is living in perfect unity with our Father and living in perfect love with our Father. This is our aim, this is our goal, this is in fact our destiny as believers. For most of us here today, this is not a new idea. Many of you have heard me say this more times than you could remember. But the question before us today is not this. It is not, do you understand the dynamics of living by faith? Rather, the question before us today is, are you actually living by faith? How's it going for you? Are you drawing near to Christ day by day? Are you reading and savoring his words day by day? Do you love being in his word, or is that a chore for you? Are you learning what it means to pray without ceasing, to talk to your Father about all things at all times? Are you seeking the power of the Holy Spirit to help you understand and to do God's will? Are you advancing toward the day when you can say honestly along with Jesus that you're only doing what you're seeing your Father doing, you're only saying what you're hearing your Father saying? How are you doing? Living by faith is an easy thing to understand. It's not that hard to draw it up and explain the details of it. And it's frankly a very simple way of life. But sin and Satan make it complicated. Sin and Satan make these things difficult. So by his grace, Jesus acts and he speaks into our lives in such a way to help us press on toward the day when we are truly living by faith at all times and in all circumstances. By his grace, Jesus says and does things to increase our faith and teach us what it means to walk in fellowship with him and bear much fruit in him. That's what today's message is about. And I pray with all my heart that God would use it mightily in all of our lives, especially for those who've been walking with Christ for a while. I pray that we would be humble today. I pray that we would not shut our minds off, that we would not close our hearts to God, that we would not think, I already know these things. I've already heard these things. Remember what he said to the Pharisees. Because you say you can see, you are blind. And if you just admit that you are blind, then you would be able to see. So I pray that we would admit our immaturity. I pray that we would admit our weakness. I pray that we would open up our heart today and let Jesus speak powerfully into our lives by his word. After Jesus had fed 
about 20,000 people with nothing more than five barley loaves and two pickled fish, which were the provisions of the poor in that day. He withdrew to the nearby hills because the crowd wanted to force him to be their king. But Jesus did not entrust himself to any person or to any group of people. He was not seeking just to gain a following for himself to build his own kingdom on this earth, so to speak. Jesus entrusted himself to his Father alone, and so he drew away to be with his Father. He knew that his time to rise up and be the king above all had not yet come, and he knew for sure that even when he was to be king, this is not the way it was going to happen. And so he withdrew again to be with his Father. He withdrew from that powerful crowd. He withdrew to seek his Father's will. When the evening came, Jesus decided to send his disciples down to the shore of the Sea of Galilee where they got into the only boat that was there and where they began the five-mile journey across the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. Their target destination was the city of Capernaum where they had once lodged with Jesus on the way to Jerusalem and where Jesus had once healed an official son from a distance and where some scholars think that Jesus' family was then residing at the time. Sometime after the disciples set out onto the sea, the sun went all the way down, darkness covered the land and the sea, and a gale force wind descended upon them. This was not, and it still is not, unusual for the Sea of Galilee for these sort of sudden storms to come up, but on this particular night, the winds were particularly strong. In normal conditions, the disciples would have been able to row across the northern side of the Sea of Galilee and reach Capernaum in two hours or less. But as we look at what the Gospel of Mark has to say about this night, we know that in these conditions, they had actually been rowing for nine hours, and still they were only three to four miles across the sea. They were only about two-thirds of the way in. They had been rowing for nine hours you ever been on a tumultuous lake in a canoe trying to make your way across? Have you ever been in the kind of white caps in a boat or something that made you wonder if you were even going to live through the night? This is what the disciples were facing, but they kept soldiering on. And you might ask, if it was that bad and if the conditions were that serious, why didn't they just forsake themselves to the wind and let the wind carry them to where there was land? Why didn't they just give up and go back and then, and then make it to land the next day? Well, I think that that's a fair question. But the reason that they kept pressing on was because Jesus commanded them to go to Capernaum. I want us to understand, beloved, that the reason they were striving against the wind was because they were seeking to be obedient to Jesus. Jesus had commanded them, make it to Capernaum. And so no matter what the obstacles, they were gonna obey their Lord. And I think we should commend them for that. They were not striving against the wind in their flesh. They were striving against the wind in the desire to be obedient. And yet, it seemed that all they had in their power was the power of the flesh. It didn't seem like they were making much progress. Just think about that. Nine hours, three miles. Nine hours, three miles. About 3 a.m. We determined that from the Gospel of Mark. About 3 a.m., as they labored to cross the sea, they looked either behind them or beside them, and they saw Jesus out there walking on the water, but they didn't know who he was. It was just a shadowy figure. And so you can understand, I certainly, certainly understand why they were afraid. Already the conditions would have frightened anybody. 
But now to look out and see somebody walking on the water, they didn't know what they were seeing, they didn't know who they were seeing, they just knew that they were seeing something real and they were frightened and so in his grace, Jesus called out to them and said, it is I, do not be afraid. Or if I can say more literally what the Greek text says here, Jesus says, I am, do not be afraid. Now, in the Greek language, it was not unusual for someone to introduce themselves or, or whatever by saying, I am. Ego eimi is the way you would say it in Greek. It's me, I'm here. But in Jesus' case, I think there's more significance to what he's saying here. Because most of you know that in the Old Testament, the name of God is Yahweh. This is his primary name, although he's called by many names. This is his primary name. And that name means I am. When the Old Testament got translated into Greek, that the words became ego eimi. Instead of Yahweh, it was ego eimi. I am. I am. When Jesus, therefore, says to the disciples, ego eimi, do not be afraid. I am. Do not be afraid. He is claiming to be God, beloved. Although the disciples were not in the right frame of mind or in the right state of faith to really understand what Jesus was saying, he was saying, I know that the sea is rough, I know that the winds are fierce, I know that your hope is dying, I know that your strength is gone, but I am. So do not be afraid. Beloved, that is a great word for us to remember, especially when we're being anxious, especially when we feel afraid. In our times of fear, in our times of difficulty, in our times of pressing on to obey the things that God has told us to do, we should hear him saying to us, I am, I am. Yes, your circumstances are, but I am. Do not be afraid. When the disciples heard these words, they gladly welcomed him into the boat. And notice what John says in verse 21. As soon as Jesus got into the boat, John says, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now that word immediately stands in stark contrast to the nine hours it took to get two-thirds of the way across the sea, right? Somehow or other, when Jesus got into their boat, their mission was accomplished. For they simply didn't land on land, they actually got to the place that they were supposed to be going. They didn't just get out of the storm and find some safety on the ground. They actually arrived at their destination. While, they're, while the disciples were rowing and striving and seeking to do the will of God, they failed. But Jesus came and entered into their lives. He entered into their boat. He entered into the situation. And while he did not necessarily remove all the difficulty and all the circumstances, he caused them to fulfill his command. And he did it quickly. When it says that immediately they were at the land, we don't know exactly how much time had passed, but it doesn't really matter. Even if it took them another 30 minutes compared to nine hours, it was nothing. The lesson is clear, beloved. No matter the circumstances, the presence of Christ among them made obedience to Christ possible. The obstacles that seemed so insurmountable to them were not insurmountable to Christ. And so he caused them to complete his will. Now before we move on, I, I do wanna address the fact that Jesus walked upon non-frozen water. When I first moved to Minnesota, you won't believe this, but I didn't even know that lakes froze up. I had no idea. I'm from LA, we're stupid out there. I had no idea you could walk on a lake, drive a car on a lake. I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe that. 
So I called up my friends around, you know, January-ish that first year, and I said, brothers and sisters, I am just growing so much in my faith. I've grown so much. I can now walk on water. can do it all over the state of Minnesota pretty much at will. But I was walking on frozen water, right? Jesus was not walking on frozen water. Jesus was walking on liquid water. He was walking on non-frozen water, and this is not a small thing. This is not something that we should just quickly pass by. But I want us to understand that however, whatever the details are of how he did that, I'm going to leave that to another time. But what I want us to note is that he did this after spending significant time in prayer with his father. Please understand that. While the disciples were rowing and striving, Jesus was praying and waiting. They were striving for nine hours. Jesus was praying for nine hours. At some point, his father put it on his heart to go out to that lake, that sea, to us it would just be a lake, the Sea of Galilee is probably about the size of Lake Mille Lacs. He encouraged him to go out and to walk out to the disciples, forget about the tumultuous conditions to save his people and to bring them to the place where they were supposed to go. Beloved, this was an amazing act and it demonstrated the uniqueness of who Jesus was. But we must understand that he was not trying to impress his disciples. He was walking on that water in obedience to his father. This story is about obedience. It would be foolish to say that this story has nothing to do with miraculous things. It would be foolish to say that Jesus was not trying to show the true nature of who he was. But I still think that at the heart of this story, it is about a son perfectly submitted to his father. This is a story about what is possible when a life is fully given to God. This is a story about a savior who's trying to teach his disciples to walk by faith and not to walk by sight. The punch of this story is that the presence of Christ enables obedience to Christ, no matter what obstacles stand in our way. What seem like obstacles to us, beloved, never seem like obstacles to Jesus. Not even gale force winds. Not even the fluidity of non-frozen water. He was living in faith, by faith in his Father, and he was trying to teach his disciples to live by faith in him. And little secret, he's trying to teach us today to live by faith in him. He did these things a long time ago. He preserved these things for our sake. He's trying now to teach us what's possible when we live by faith. Now as for the crowd, they were still seeking Jesus and they were perplexed. They knew that the night before, there had only been one boat on the shore. And somehow, they also knew that Jesus had put his disciples into that boat and sent them across the sea, but that Jesus himself didn't get into the boat. So when the morning dawned and they began to seek Jesus and couldn't find him, they were confused. They couldn't understand what happened. They couldn't figure out where he went and why he went and how he got there. Eventually, a number of boats landed in the area near to where they were. They came from the city of Tiberias. And the crowd decided that as many of them could, as could fit would board those boats and go across to the port of Capernaum, the other major western port on the Sea of Galilee, to see if maybe Jesus was there. And that's exactly what they did. We don't know how many of them were able to fit and how many of them were able to go, but it was probably a significant amount of people, probably more than hundreds. Perhaps, or unlike the disciples, 
their journey across the sea was uneventful, and they reached Capernaum pretty quickly, probably in under two hours. And they began to search for Jesus, and by the grace of God, they found him, and in verse 25, they just said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And notice that they did not say, how did you come here? Because their assumption was that somehow he got across on a boat. What they were confused about is what boat, when did that happen? They knew about the storm. They knew about the difficulties of the night. They just couldn't understand what had happened. So they were asking him, Lord, when? When did you come over here? How did this take place? And perhaps their question was fair. But in Jesus' wisdom, he ignored their question and he went straight to the heart of the matter. Specifically, he said this in verse 26. Truly, truly, I say to you, with all the passion I can muster in my heart, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because of the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. In other words, the Lord was saying, although you witnessed and benefited from the multiplication of the loaves and the fish, you did not have eyes to see the deeper meaning of what happened yesterday. You were hungry. Your hunger was satisfied by the grace of God, and that was enough for you. You are fleshly people. You think fleshly thoughts. And so you're not here today to seek God. You're not here today to figure out who I am. You're not here today to find out what God is up to in me and through me. You're not here today to give it all up so that you can gain your Father. You're here today because you're hungry again. You're here today because you want your desires met on your terms. You are fundamentally fleshly people. And so Jesus continued in verse 27, and he gave them some advice that's very, very good advice for all of us. Do not work for the food that perishes but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, and on him alone, God the Father has set his seal. Jesus was saying, don't spend your time, your talent, your treasure, striving for things that are just gonna fade away. Don't spend yourself on things that will ultimately be spent and then disappear. Rather, labor with all your might for the true food that comes from the Son of Man the true food that comes from that prophetic figure about whom the prophet Daniel spoke. For he will give you the true food. And why should they do this? Well, Jesus said, because this one, this son of man, on him alone, the father had set his seal. And surely, when he says that, what he's talking about is the Holy Spirit. You know in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit came and went on kings and on prophets, and sometimes on various other people to do the will of God. But on this one, the Holy Spirit came and stayed. The Holy Spirit came and remained upon him, both at this time and forevermore. The seal of God is the Holy Spirit of God, and this is the proof that Jesus is who he said he is. The crowd did not reject what Jesus said, but they were confused by what he said, and so they asked in verse 28. They said, what must we do then to be doing the works of God? If you're telling us that we should spend our lives laboring for food that will not fade away, what does that mean? What does that look like? What are we supposed to do? I don't understand how are we supposed to act from here forward. And in response to this, Jesus said what might be the most important words, they're at least among the most important words in the Gospel of John. They are among the most important words ever spoken in the Bible or in the history of the world. I really don't think I'm exaggerating. 
chapter 6, verse 29. This is the work of God, that you believe in, whom, in him whom he has sent. As we meditate on what Jesus is saying here, beloved, I think we see that he himself is the food that endures to eternal life. I think we see that the way that we eat that bread of him is by believing in him, and not just for one moment at a time, but in every moment over time. This is the singular work to which God calls all humanity, namely that we believe and believe and keep on believing in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. This is the labor of life. Living by faith is the fundamental fight of this life, and it deserves all of our heart, it deserves all of our soul, it deserves all of our mind, it deserves all of our strength. To what degree are you consumed with the fight for faith, beloved? This is why you were born, this is why you have life. We should fight for faith more fiercely than those disciples fought to get across the top of the Sea of Galilee. And I do want to confess, to admit, to say out loud that gaining faith is indeed a fight, is it not? It is a fight to die to ourselves. It is a fight to listen to the words of Jesus and to take them seriously every day. It is a fight to learn what it means to pray without ceasing. It is a fight to understand and to do God's will. It is a fight to seek the presence and power of God so that we can do his will. It is a fight to forsake the world and its ways. It is a fight to resist Satan and all of his plans and all of his designs and all of his workers. It is a fight to be conformed into the image of Christ. The fundamental labor of life is gaining faith in Jesus Christ at any cost, at any consequence. And the secret, though, to what Jesus is saying here, the secret to what he's trying to teach is this. Essentially, the weight of this fight is not on our shoulders, it's on his shoulders. He's teaching us that as we put our faith in him, he will fight for us, he will fight for us, he will fight through us, he will fight for our benefit. He will feed us from his eternal supply and he will give us eternal life. We will win the victory in him. He will get in our boat if we will simply open up our hearts and he will cause us to cross the sea. He will bring us to the shore to which he sent us. Yes, living by faith is a fight, beloved. It is a war. We are in a war. And if you don't think that fighting for faith is a war, it's because you are asleep and you need to wake up. It is a fight, it is a war to live by faith. But beloved, this is a war that Christ wages inside of us for us and for the glory of his name. When he gets into the boat, things begin to happen. This is the work of God, the singular work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. On hearing this, the people still didn't reject Jesus, but they still didn't understand what he was saying, and they still had not bought into who he was claiming to be. And so they said this in verses 30 and 31, if you'll please look there with me. Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? What work do you perform? How will you prove that you are the one you're claiming to be? 
Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, doesn't that seem like an odd thing to ask of Jesus? When they, a lot of these people at least, had just seen him multiply bread and fish just a couple days ago. It seems very odd. But if you look down just quickly, down to verse 59, and see what it says there. Well, we won't meditate on that until next week. But down in verse 59, we learn that this whole conversation is taking place in a synagogue. So probably what happened is that the disciples crossed the sea. The next day, Jesus crossed the sea. He connects with them. Together they go to the synagogue for whatever reason. There he is gathered with Jews from that area or with those who are visiting that area. Perhaps even the man whose son had been healed was there that day. We don't really know. We know he was from that city. Perhaps even some of Jesus' family were there that day. We think that probably his family was living in Capernaum at the time. But as they were there gathered in the synagogue, here comes this huge crowd. And it probably was the case that they couldn't all fit in the building. It probably was the case that the conversation ended up taking place outside. So everything from, I can't remember the exact verse, but wherever this conversation took place, I think it's around verse 22 or so, or 22, 3, 4, 25 or so down, this whole conversation took place in a crowd at least near to a synagogue. And so in this crowd was a mix of people who had seen the multiplication of bread and fish and also other people who had not seen that. They had certainly heard, though, about signs that Jesus had did. How could they not have heard about the official son who had been healed in their very city? They surely knew that this man was not a normal man. They surely had some sense of the claims that were being made about him, but they were saying now, You're making a significant claim with the things that you're saying, and we want you to prove that the things that you are saying are true. In their day, the Jewish rabbis taught them that in the same way that their former redeemer, Moses, had caused bread from heaven to come down and feed the people of Israel, so the later redeemer, the Messiah who would come to deliver, he also would cause manna to come down on the earth. I won't go back and take you into the Old Testament and show you where they got this from, but I don't think they were reading the Old Testament very well. But their whole teaching was that when the Messiah comes, he will cause manna to come down from heaven, just like Moses. He will show in this way that he is the prophet of Deuteronomy 18. He will show that he's the deliverer. What these people were asking for was proof that Jesus was the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18. They were not denying the sign he had already done. They were simply saying, that sign doesn't prove what Moses said was going to happen. That sign doesn't prove what our teachers say are going to happen. So show us, Jesus. Don't just tell us, but show us. Jesus understood exactly what they were asking. He knew what they were up to. He knew what their motives were. And so he said this in verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you with all passion and with seriousness, with sincerity, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. In other words, Jesus was saying, your rabbis are wrong about their interpretation of the past, and therefore they are wrong about their present expectations and their future expectations. They have this wrong. It wasn't about Moses, it was about God the Father. God the Father caused manna to rain from heaven and that manna was a symbol pointing toward a better bread that would feed people not for 40 years but forever. 
It would cause them not to grumble, but it would cause them to rejoice. God the Father is the one who is in control here. God the Father is the one who is sending the bread that comes down from heaven. And then he said in verse 33, for the bread of God is this. This is the bread I'm talking about. It is he who comes down from heaven. It's not an it, it's a he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. The people still didn't understand what Jesus was saying and I must admit that if I was in that crowd, I probably would have been confused too. So like the woman at the well, they just said to him in verse 34, they said, sir, then please give us this bread always. If there's some bread that can feed us and fill us forever, that is pleasing to God, that comes from God, we want that bread and we want it all the time. We want it always. Please feed us. Verse 35, Jesus said, I am, ego eimi, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Again, the words I am constitute a claim to divinity, beloved. And the assertion that he is the bread of life is a claim that he alone is the food that causes us to live and to keep on living even unto eternal life. It is a claim that he has the power of life inside of his hands. And like I've said to you many times throughout the series in the Gospel of John, we just have to slow down and picture what that would be like to hear a human being standing in front of us and saying, even as God gives life, I do that too. I do that too. This is what Jesus was claiming. Of course, he was claiming that because it's true. But for them, these were shocking things. For them, these were jarring things. For them, these were, in some ways, troubling things. And this is why he said, in the, in the Greek way of expressing things, he said, whoever comes to me and comes to me and comes to me, not just one at a time. The way this is written in Greek means it's a pattern of life. The one who comes to me and comes to me and comes to me will never hunger. The one who believes in me and believes in me and believes in me will never ever thirst. No matter how disturbed they were by his claims, no matter how hard they found it to accept, he just kept proclaiming the truth. He just kept saying what his father had given him to say. He was not trying to win an argument. He was being obedient to his father. He said that whoever makes a life of feeding on him will live and be satisfied forever. Beloved, Jesus was saying that the Jewish rabbis were wrong because the coming Redeemer, the one now standing right before their eyes, was not only equal to Moses, not only kind of like Moses, but he was much greater than Moses. In fact, please hear this. Have you wondered, by the way, why the story of the walking on the water is sandwiched in between, that was a funny way to say it, sandwiched in between the bread stories? Have you wondered why? Doesn't it seem a little odd and out of place? I think the reason why the Lord put that story there was to show that Jesus is greater than Moses. Moses led the people of God through the Red Sea, how? Because in faith he lifted up his staff and God split the sea and they walked through on dry ground. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus delivered his people from a tumultuous storm and brought them into their own promised land by walking on top of the wind and the waves, by walking on top of the sea. Jesus is much greater than Moses. The multiplication of the bread and the conquering of a tumultuous sea were the signs that Jesus gave to them, beloved. 
They were the signs that he was the one to come. They were the signs that he was the prophet of Deuteronomy 18, that he was greater than Moses, that he came to fulfill all things. However, Jesus knew the condition of the people's hearts, and so he kept pressing them. He said, but I said to you, this is in verses 36 through 40 now, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. You have seen all these things with your eyes. The problem is your heart. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven. I am the bread of heaven. I am the bread of life. Not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and looks on the Son and looks on the Son and believes in him and believes in him and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Beloved, these people, all of them, had been shown plenty of signs. The issue was that their hearts were hard. That was the problem. They didn't need more signs. They needed soft hearts. In seeing, they did not see. In hearing the clear proclamation of the word of God, they did not hear. In receiving the gracious gifts of God, they did not believe. They did not understand. They did not perceive what God was up to. And while this may have grieved Jesus, it did not trouble him with the kind of anxiety that comes from uncertainty and insecurity. He was not concerned that his plan to grow his church, so to speak, wasn't working. He was not concerned that the people were not believing. It's not that he didn't care, it's that he was resting in his father, beloved. He was perfectly confident in the purposes and plans of his father and he knew something. He knew that God the Father had already given to him all who would in the future come to him. It was a done deal from his father's perspective. So he didn't worry about those who came and those who didn't come. He just kept on obeying, kept on preaching, kept on walking, kept on plodding forward in the will of God. And he knew that all who would come to him belonged to him forever and ever. He knew that he would never cast them out he knew that he would never give up on them. He knew that he would never otherwise lose them. He, would knew that, he knew that no one would be able to snatch them out of his hands, as he will say in chapter 10. He would never offer people the bread of life and then take it back as soon as they began to eat it. He knew that the, those were not the terms of the deal. Surely, Jesus would guide and discipline his people as they learned to feed on him. So, but no matter the obstacles standing in their way, within or without, he knew that he would bring them across their own sea of Galilee and bring them to their own destiny. Jesus knew that Satan would ask to sift each one of them and every one of us like wheat. Satan would ask permission to destroy us. But like Jesus did in the case of Peter, everyone who truly belongs to him Jesus looks at Satan and says, request denied. End of story. Your faith and mine might be tested until we feel like we will break, but we will not break because Jesus is no servant of Satan and he will not grant his requests. For as the one who is the bread of life, 
Jesus had come down from heaven to do what? To do his Father's will. He did not come to do his own will. Every single thing he thought or felt or said or did was the will of his Father. Can you imagine being able to say that about yourself? That every single thing you think or feel or say or do is perfectly in the will of your Father. This was the life of Jesus. And in the context of this discussion, his Father's will was that no one who was given to him and came to him by faith would be lost. Not a single one. Anyone who came and then walked away, I'm not saying it didn't grieve Jesus, but I'm saying that it did not overly alarm him because he knew that his Father was in total control. Indeed, for those who truly came to him by faith, not even death would separate them from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Because on the last day, Jesus said, I have the power to give life, and I will speak that power, and I will raise them up on the last day, and they will live. For the will of the Father is that whoever fights the fight of faith and simply believes and keeps on believing in Jesus, that one will live forever and will ultimately overcome death in Jesus, through Jesus, and for the glory of Jesus. Beloved, this is the singular work of God that we believe in him whom he has sent. This is the singular work of God that we should come to Jesus and come to Jesus and come to Jesus and believe in Jesus and believe in Jesus and believe in Jesus day by day, hour by hour, moment by moment. This is the singular work of God that we should learn to eat and eat and eat of Jesus and drink and drink and drink from his spirit so that we will never be hungry and never be thirsty again. This is the singular work of God to cling to the one who has promised that he will never let go of us. I can remember times when my daddy, when I was little, I remember once in particular coming to my mind right now, I was in danger of falling into some water that probably would have taken my life if I fell in, but my daddy had me by his hand and I had, was full of joy because I knew there was no way he was ever gonna let me go. His grip was stronger than the circumstances facing us at the moment. This is the joy of everybody who walks with Christ. We cling to the one who has promised that he will never, ever let us go, even unto eternal life. Next week, we're gonna look at the conclusion of this discussion. But for now, I wanna to return to the questions that I asked you in the beginning, and I wanna ask you, with regard to your life, with regard to what happens in your life day by day, with regard to living by faith, how are you doing? With regard to this singular work of God, to come and believe and eat and drink of Jesus, how is it going with you? With regard to the command to make a life of feeding on Christ, how are you progressing? None of us are in that perfect spot. Not even a John Piper or an R.C. Sproul or a Charles Spurgeon or a Name Your Hero here is in that perfect spot, but are you progressing? Is your life moving in the right direction? A mentor of mine said to me a couple of years ago that he's not so much concerned with the, with the level of his progress as he is with the direction of his progress. Is he progressing in the right direction? And if he's progressing in the right direction, then he's content to let the speed of the progress be up to the Father. So what is the direction of your progression? Are you learning to live by faith? As I mentioned at the beginning of the message, 
And living by faith does assume a growing body of knowledge about Jesus. It does mean that we have to study the word of God and understand the word of God and understand the things of God. But beloved, at the end of the day, living by faith is not fundamentally an intellectual matter. It's a relational matter. It's children learning to walk with their father. It's, it's about doing life with Jesus Christ. And since Jesus is the greatest and most glorious person in the universe, don't you think he deserves everything we have? Tell me, who is more important than Jesus? Who is more worth our time than Jesus? Now, I'm aware, because I am one of you and I spend time with some of you, I'm aware that we're all very busy people. We all have many things going on in our lives. But the truth of the matter is that we all make time for the things that are important to us, don't we? If you really value something, oh, interesting, there's time for you to do that thing that you're interested in. And when we really love somebody, Somehow, despite the busyness, we find time for that person, even in the midst of the busyness. I was, as I was praying about this the other day, I was remembering when I first met Kimmy. When I first met her, it was the summer of 1989, been 28 years ago now, my love, and I was a very busy man. I was running a, the painting division of a business for a Christian brother of mine, not a blood brother, but a guy in our church, and I was working 15 to 20 hours a week for the church without pay, just because I was passionate about the gospel. And whenever I wasn't working or sleeping, I was engaged in the work of the gospel. I was very busy. I was leading a, a number of things. And in fact, that's how Kim and I met. She came out with a team to help churches during a summer, and she was assigned to help with the project that I was leading. And that's how we met. I was very busy. But what do you know? When she and I began to see Christ in each other and to be attracted to one another, what do you know, I, I found time. I found time to be with her, why? Because I valued her, I loved her, I wanted to pursue her, even as she was pursuing Christ. I remained busy, I remained productive at work, I remained fruitful in the work of the gospel. I did not forsake God for Kimberly. But what I'm saying is, she grabbed my heart and I found, what, what do you know, I found time. And, and the same dynamic applies to life in Christ. When he grips your heart, when he becomes a treasure to you, when he becomes beautiful to you, glorious to you, voila, boom, there's time. And I'm not saying it's easy, but I'm saying that somehow, some way, love always finds a way. Somehow, some way, love finds a time to be with its beloved. And so if we desire to live by faith, the first and foremost thing we have to do is figure out a way to give ourselves to God, to spend time with God, to listen to him, to walk with him. How will we ever get to the place where we can only do what we see our Father doing if we don't look to see what our Father's doing? How will we ever get to the place where we can only say what we hear our Father saying if we don't stop to listen to what our Father is saying? How will we ever learn what it means to walk by faith in spontaneous moments of life if we don't have the, just the normal, natural habit of doing our lives with Christ. So how are you doing, beloved? What are the obstacles that are in your way right now to living this kind of life? For the disciples in, in, in this one moment, their obstacles were a gale-force wind, tumultuous waves, and a, and a very gripping darkness, but Jesus met them right where they were at. He got into the boat of their life, and when he got into that boat, boom, they fulfilled his commands. And the same dynamic is at work for us, even though our obstacles are different. Jesus will meet every one of us right where we're at today if all we do is open our hearts and say, please, Lord, come in. Please, Lord, we hear you speaking today. We hear your word from John 6, 16 through 40. We want to live like that. Please, Lord, get into the boat with us. He will come to us in the midst of our own storms. He will teach us how to reach our destiny. 
The presence of Christ is what makes obedience to Christ possible, beloved, no matter what the obstacles are. And the bottom line of it is this, that if you truly belong to Christ, he has already promised you that he is going to get you from where you are to the destiny where he's commanded you to go. He's going to do this in you. This is the good news for us. He will never let us go. He will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He will never stop until this work in us is completely done. And so, it might be a little challenging to all of us to really search our hearts and say, Lord, how am I doing? How is this living by faith thing going for me? It might be uncomfortable. We might have to face some things we don't really want to face. But when we face those things, beloved, as believers, please hear me, we face those things in hope because Jesus Christ is on our side. And if God be for us, who could possibly be against us? Amen? What circumstances could possibly stand against us if Christ is laboring for us, beloved. So search your hearts in hope. Search your hearts in faith. Hear this as an invitation, not as an accusation. How are you doing? How's this living by faith thing going? Oh, the Lord wants to lead us into great joy. So our job this morning is just to surrender to him. And let me pray now that he'll help us to do that. Our Father, we thank you so much for this word. We thank you for speaking these things to people a very long time ago, and we thank you for preserving them for our sake, that you might speak them into our lives today. And I pray, Father, that we would be humble. I pray that our hearts would be open. I pray that we would be willing to listen to you and to examine ourselves and to let you teach us to walk in the way that you would have us go. Father, surely some of the things that we're doing are pleasing to you, but other things that we're doing need help. We need a change of direction. In some areas, we flat out need repentance. We need to forsake the things of the flesh and the world. I pray that you'd come and help us to discern all those things, Lord. I pray that you'd come and reveal our hearts to us, just like you did to those people back then. And I pray that you would speak this powerful word into our lives, that you will never let us go. You will not lose one of us. You will never forsake those who come to you by faith because we've been given to you by the Father. So help us, Lord, to hear the unalterable hope of that and help us to search our hearts. And Lord, please teach us to stretch toward that day where we can honestly say that we only do what we see our Father doing and we only say what we hear our Father saying. Thank you for your work in us today, Jesus. We rise now to sing your praise. Amen.